0: So we've been going through the Ten Commandments, and we're week seven, the Seventh Commandment, and you've just heard it. So do not commit adultery. Uh, If you're visiting with us today, good pick, good week. Um, Welcome. We're glad you're here. Um, And we hope you'll come back. (laughs) Um, And I should say before anything else that obviously given the commandment that we're discussing today there are some sensitive topics sensitive topics that children might not want to hear parents might not want their children to hear or that might be triggering for some of us and so just be mindful of that as you listen or as you join us online um yeah so here we go i speak to you in the name of almighty god father son and holy spirit amen It was in 1967, and then Minister for Justice Pierre Elliott Trudeau was preparing reforms to the Criminal Code of Canada, which would change our government's position on abortion, on contraceptives, and on sexual actions between consenting adults, same-sex sexual activity, and actions between a husband and wife, which until that time had been criminal offenses. Remarking on these changes in law, Pierre Trudeau was quoted as saying, there is no place for the state in the bedrooms of the nation. I don't think any of us listening today would dispute that. More than 50 years later, and most of us have been shaped by this idea that there are certain things the government just has no business making criminal offenses. Surely what two consenting adults get up to, so long as nobody is harmed, should not land one or both of them in prison. It just seems absurd. Of course there is no place for the state in the bedrooms of the nation. But maybe more than just the state. Perhaps some of us believe God has no place in our bedrooms either. Some of us would say that anything that comes from such a core part of a person's identity as their sexuality and their sexual expression should be hampered by no means, not by the government, not by God, and certainly not by the church. In our relationships with God, we're okay if there are rules. No other gods, no idols, no bearing God's name in vain. Remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. Fine. Fair enough. We're even open to some rules about how we relate to each other. Honor our parents. Don't kill. Don't steal. These make a certain amount of sense. But by adding not committing adultery to the list, it seems like God, at least for some of us, is now crossing a line. If the government has no place in our bedrooms, what place could God possibly have there? Honestly, it seems strange to me that this commandment should be the one that I am most uneasy about preaching. When commandments like no other gods before me offend the pluralism which our culture values. And the prohibition against idols challenges how each of us treats our bank accounts. And commands like keeping the Sabbath offend the sensibility that we must earn what we have. But it's adultery which was the commandment I was sure I could not assign to another member of the pastoral staff that I couldn't pawn off to a guest preacher, that I actually rescheduled the time my siblings and I go to my grandpa's cabin so that I would be here today because I figured if there's heat to take for this commandment, well, God should take it. But next to God, I, I should take it. And maybe you feel the most nervous about hearing this commandment as well. And meanwhile, others of us believe it to be true that God has business in at least some of our bedrooms, only those people whose personal or sexual lives are beyond the bounds of our comfort or our interpretation of Scripture. But we fail to consider that God may be speaking even more clearly and directly to us. I anticipate that some who are now listening to me are hoping that I will mention this or that behavior as breaking this commandment, but it's not something that they personally struggle with. Rather, it's something that they feel other people should hear mentioned from this pulpit. And I want to challenge us today to hear this commandment for each of us first and for us collectively as a community and not to listen on behalf of our neighbor. Don't listen on behalf of your neighbor in your pew or your neighbor down the street. I hope after today to not hear from anybody, why didn't you mention this or that, unless the this or that is something that they personally struggle with. If that's the case, fair enough, you can ask me that question. I'll be happy to receive that feedback. Listen for yourself first and some of us are probably going to be uncomfortable in the next 20 minutes or so uncomfortable because of the way this commandment and the words of jesus challenges our lives today challenges and casts a new light on the actions of our past and it's okay to be uncomfortable i was uncomfortable as i was preparing for today I think any of us who are honestly engaging with all of these Ten Commandments will find ourselves uncomfortable more often than not. But that's okay. If you start to feel uncomfortable today, know that none of this is for your shame. None of this is for our shame. But all of this is for our restoration and healing. Jesus came, lived, died, and rose that we might live in him. And Jesus extends that invitation to find new life in him again today. So if you feel uncomfortable, just pause and pray to Jesus and find in him forgiveness, grace, and strength for you. We should all hear something for us in these texts because this commandment is for all of us. And today, we are confronted with the difficult reality that, at least as far as God is concerned, God does have business in each of our bedrooms. As Peter J. Lighthart puts it, Unlike the permissive gods of antiquity or modernity, the God of Sinai is an intrusive God who will not leave us alone. Right? This is an intrusive God that can add something like this to the Ten Commandments. An intrusive God who makes it that much more onerous in Jesus. An intrusive God who follows us even into our most private and intimate moments and expects that we conform to his goodness and life. Why? Why does God care so much about adultery that it makes this list? What business does God really have in the bedrooms of his creation? First, we should define adultery. In the world where this law was first given, it was a specific type of sexual action. Anytime a married woman had sex with a man who was not her husband, whether or not that man was married, the two of them were guilty of adultery. Now, if a man had sex with an unmarried if a married man had sex with an unmarried woman, that was not adultery. So it was quite unbalanced in that regard, but it was equitable in that both partners were understood to be guilty of adultery. It was very narrowly defined. This was commonly held among all the cultures of this region at this time. They all understood adultery in this way. But what was unique was that for the Israelites, it moved from uh, an offense against a person, a sin, a crime against an individual, a husband, being a sin against god breaking the law of god and at this point you might be thinking to yourself and somebody has already said to me today well i'm unmarried and i have no plans to have sex with a married woman so i'm good Right? Like, this doesn't apply to me. I'm an unmarried guy or girl, and I'm not going to have sex with a married woman, so I'm not going to commit adultery. I'm okay. We can move on. Or you might be thinking, I'm in a marriage, but I have no intentions on cheating on my partner, so I'm good. And if only it were that simple. We could all just agree, and that would be it. But it goes deeper. Even as we heard from Tamika last week that the commandment against murder is not only broken should we take a weapon in our hand and actually go to kill someone, but it's also broken if there's unaddressed hatred or anger in our hearts. So too, Jesus points us in a challenging direction this week as he expands the definition of adultery such that it speaks to all of us, single and married alike. There's often the suggestion that Jesus doesn't have anything to say about sex. That if the essence of Christianity could be boiled down to just what Jesus said, and Jesus doesn't mention it, then it doesn't matter. We can ignore it and move on. But today we've heard Jesus address this very commandment, and he doesn't say it's only something for married women to worry about. And he doesn't say that marriage, you know, is such an old-fashioned concept. Don't worry about it. It's okay. Just do whatever you want. Rather, he expands our understanding of adultery, even as he expanded our understanding of murder. As we heard Jesus says in Matthew 5, you have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, anyone that looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her, In his heart. First, we see that the actions of a person on their own can be adultery. You don't need a partner to commit adultery, Jesus says. This is certainly beyond the understanding and the definition that was accepted at the time. And it's probably challenging for us today who would of course say that if a man cheats on his wife, that's adultery too, right? That expansion of the definition we're okay with. But Jesus takes it far beyond that. Even single people can be guilty of adultery with just a lustful look. With only a lustful look, a person can commit adultery in their heart. And how many of us have done far more than lustful looks? If lustful looks are adultery, then Jesus must also believe all sex which is outside of the bond of marriage to be a breach of this commandment. All indulgence in pornography to be an act of adultery. And every impure thought a sin against God. Jesus who too often is said to have no thoughts on sexual ethics, condemns hookup culture and all lustful actions as adultery at heart, governed by lust. Jesus isn't offering some new morality here. Rather, he is clarifying the intention which God always had in this commandment, And if we were to ask, well, why didn't God just say that? His answer would likely be the same answer he gave about why divorce was permitted in the Old Testament. Because of the hardness of their hearts. Because of the hardness of our hearts. So why are these things so problematic that Jesus has to condemn them so resoundingly? The reasons are manifold. First, we have been created in the image of God, and we are to be as God is. And one of the core attributes of God's character is God's faithfulness, as we sang so much about this morning. God is frequently described in the Old Testament as a faithful spouse to unfaithful Israel. And God desires that we should be a faithful people as well, not only in our relationship with God. Because if we're unfaithful with each other all the time, how can we hope to be faithful in our relationship with God? Our relationships with each other are where we practice our best and truest relationship with God. God expects that we would reflect God's likeness in our actions and in all of our relationships. God also calls us to honor the image of God in one another. That's why there's the commandment not to kill, right? Human beings reflect God's image and we take the place of God deciding that this image is too far gone to be saved. This image is too offensive to be honored. And in the same way, the commandment against adultery is about protecting the image of God in each person. You see, lust, it shifts our gaze, When we look at a person made in the image of God, but we look at them lustfully, we no longer see a person do a special amount of honor, but now we see a thing which is to be consumed, and in our consumeristic culture, how much worse has this inclination become? Swiping left or right on images of people, image bearers of God, judging them by how well they may satisfy our sexual appetites. Engaging with pornography where people are regularly exploited. Many of the people in these videos are victims of human trafficking or are underage. And even if that weren't true, maybe you're not so sure about that. Still, the goal of the whole industry is to produce videos for our cheap satisfaction and to pervert our own sense of what healthy sexual activity should look like. To make a gift from God, a good gift from God, into a sad facsimile of itself. As Lightheart says again, we seek sexual pleasure without a commitment to a shared life, and so defy the faithful covenant God that's who God is. God's a God who makes commitments. God doesn't seek to extract anything from us without being first willing to fully commit himself to us. Again and again, God says that we will be his people, and he will be his, our God. There's a reciprocal expectation there. And when God makes a covenant with Abraham, God is seeking Abraham's faith and obedience But in return, as God does the covenant ritual, God commits God's own life to ensuring the fruitfulness of Abraham. In this covenant of laws, which we're examining through this summer, God expects Israel's obedience, but not without first rescuing them and staying near to them every day to guide them to the promised land. And in the new covenant, which is ushered in by Jesus, Jesus calls us to follow him, yes, to give up our lives for him, yes, but not without first committing his life and his death to our good and our salvation. God is not a God that seeks relationship without commitment. And consistently, God gives of God's very self for our sakes. So how much more does God call us into relationships of commitment in this world? Not seeking pleasure for pleasure's sake. Pleasure on our schedule and our terms. Pleasure at the click of a mouse or the swipe of our phone screens. But choosing to give of ourselves for the sake of another. To yield even our lives to them or else to refrain from the fruit of such committed relationship entirely. And to find satisfaction in the continued provision of our God. Committed faithfulness marriage is the christian's understanding for where all sexual activity takes place and jesus expands our understanding of adultery to include all sexual action which occurs outside of that commitment jesus says that lust is at the root of such things committed faithfulness in marriage and for those who are single committed faithfulness in celibacy this is the expectation of our god Finally, marriage itself is to be held in honor. The Christian understanding of marriage is the new flesh is formed. The husband and wife come together in one flesh, as we read in Genesis 2. Therefore, a man leaves his father and mother and clings to his wife, and they become one flesh. And adultery harms this new relationship, this new flesh that exists. And adultery, which leads to divorce, kills it. There's murder at the heart of adultery as well marriage is the image consistently used to describe the relationship between god and god's people god is faithful to one bride the church throughout all time and one day the fulfillment of creation's restoration is the wedding supper of the lamb a foretaste of which we will share with joy today marriage is a gift which god gives to us that in some ways we might better understand God's relationship to God's creation. Faithfulness in stewarding our sexuality reveals the truth of God's coming kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. And those who are single also bear witness to that goodness in a plethora of ways. They support the marriages of their friends and family. And in their faithful living, they bear witness to a future kingdom where there will be no giving or taking in marriage. For all will know deep and full communion with God their maker as the bride of Christ, our very bridegroom. If all of these behaviors are problematic, if God calls us away from lustful looks, away from hookup culture, away from everything which dishonors the image of God in another person and seeks to use them for our satisfaction, and away from everything which devalues the estate of marriage as a symbol of God's union with God's people, well, what are we to do about it? How are we to stop when we live in a culture which we heard already is so saturated by lust, where this is the norm? Jesus provides one answer, but I don't think we'll like it. Jesus says, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one of your members than for your whole body to be thrown into hell and if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one of your members than for your whole body to be thrown away into hell. So that's one answer, right? It's an answer. And he's right, but I don't think Jesus means for us to do that. If your eye is causing you to sin, sure, pluck it out. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Surely losing a part of us is better than losing all of us. But his point seems to be that these things are not to blame. Your eye isn't causing you to gaze lustfully. It isn't your hand's fault that you've touched somebody in a way that was dishonoring to them. If it wasn't your eye's fault, if it was your eye's fault, rather, sure, get rid of it. Right? If your eye is the blame, get rid of it. And if all of your sin is contained in your hand, cut it off. Be free from sin. Beautiful. Solve it. But Jesus is pointing to the fact that these things are not true. It's not our eye and it's not our hand. It is our sinful hearts which cause such actions. And it is our hearts which need to be addressed and healed. And we can't cut out our hearts. Please don't. Don't do it. You can't do it. But God offers to give us new hearts. God offers to make new hearts in us. And Jesus promises that with them we will find goodness, joy, and life in following him. Far more than having a place in our bedrooms. God seeks to have a place in the intimacy of our hearts and our minds. Sorry, there's one more slide. If you could just advance it again. one more there we go this is this is the thing far more than having a place in our bedrooms god seeks to have a place in the intimacy and privacy of our hearts and our minds god's business is not only what we do or don't do with our sexuality but in fact what we are doing with our hearts and every shoot of lust within us is the thing which the spirit is committed to uprooting for those who are followers of christ The call of Christ and the call of his bride, the church, is to faithfulness. Hear that call again today. And even as we hear that call to faithfulness in our sexuality, we should be reminded that Jesus also knew that unfortunately this law was often unjustly executed. We may together, if you've been in church for a while, you might remember the story of the woman who's caught in adultery Who is to be stoned for this offense? Where was the man with whom she had committed adultery? Who himself was also guilty of that sin? Conspicuously missing from the story. Jesus, in his mercy, forgives this woman and instructs her to go and sin no more. He doesn't undermine their understanding of adultery and its importance. But rather, he sees the injustice of the situation that no one is without sin. And he speaks with hope and new life. And the unequal application of this law and laws like it in the church are not unique to the Bible. How many of us know stories of young mothers who have been ostracized from their churches because of being pregnant outside of marriage? Meanwhile, the boy who was an equal participant is excused. He's just a boy after all, and boys will be boys. Or how often have women alone had to bear the scrutiny for the decision to abort an unexpected pregnancy and not the community who caused her to bear such or feel such unbearable shame for the child she carries or the society that fails to offer proper support for those who will have children or the fathers who can just disappear from these stories even as the man caught in adultery is absent from his story How many of us were told when we were younger that if we had sex outside of marriage, we would be like chewed up gum or a piece of wrapping paper already torn up, useless, undesired? How many of our queer siblings have been told that they have no place in the church unless they change their sexuality? Or how often have we failed to offer deep spiritual friendship to those who commit themselves to being single in submission to Christ? None of this is the will of God. The church has been just as guilty of using this commandment to target and to ostracize some more than others. And Jesus sees this injustice and calls us to repent of our wickedness as well. God also calls us to faithfulness to these brothers and sisters of ours, who though they stumble as we all stumble, are members of the bride of Christ, have received the faithfulness of God, and are invited to live in his grace and forgiveness. Let us not seek to overcome evil with evil, or lust with anger and hatred, but let us put to death all the things of the flesh and fix our eyes on whatever is good, pure, noble, and praiseworthy. When we are tempted to linger our lustful gaze, let us pray to God in thanksgiving for a beautiful work of God's creation and in honor of the one who bears God's image. When we are tempted in moments of idleness to seek sexual pleasure outside of marriage, let us commit ourselves to our faithful Savior and seek to serve others instead of ourselves. And when we hear stories that this commandment has been broken, and we will hear stories like that in our church if we're loving people who we're called to love, let us not be quick to pluck out eyes or to chop off hands, or to cause people to be unwelcome in our community. But let us receive each one with the grace of our Lord, and pray that we may all together be continually renewed into Christ's very likeness, made to be pure as his bride, and seen to be faithful even as he is faithful to us. Amen. Often we have time for reflection, but that was a lot, and probably you were thinking the whole time. So I want to invite you into time of prayer. Instead of reflection, we'll pray. I'll open in prayer and I'll close in prayer and I'll leave some space in the middle for the silent prayers of your heart. I don't know what they are. Maybe you need forgiveness for something that you've not forgiven yourself for. Maybe you need forgiveness for how you've treated other people when they needed forgiveness. Maybe you need to hear what God is saying to you in all of this. So however you need to pray, we'll leave space for that. And then I'll conclude. Let's pray together. Faithful God, we thank you that you have never left us, have never forsaken us, that even in the depths of our sin, when we have been unfaithful to you, unfaithful to each other, you will continue to seek us out and draw us to yourself. We confess to you that we are challenged by this commandment, that this might be the most difficult commandment in our culture and in our time. And some of us don't know what to do with it, don't know what to do with our lives or our past or our future, if this is what you call us to. And so we pray that you would show us the truth in this time, that there is no fear in your love, there is no shame in your light, that as your spirit casts light on our lives, we would not feel shame, but we would know your love. We would long for more of it. Here we pray the silent confessions and prayers of our hearts. for the ways we have sinned in thought, word, and deed. Have mercy on us, O Lord. Receive the penitential hearts of your people and come to us with forgiveness and grace and strength by your Spirit to live faithful lives to your honor and glory now and evermore. Amen.